You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, it'd be great to have your Bible still open if you've got one with you or a Bible app at Matthew chapter 8. We are continuing today in our new series. It's week three of Responding to Jesus. So in the lead up to Easter and just beyond, we're considering a whole raft of encounters between Jesus and others. And particularly our focus is is how people respond to Jesus and how their response might inform and challenge our response to Jesus as well. There's an outline on the back of the news, so if that's, that's of help, make use of that. But right now, let's, let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. Gracious Father, would you please help us in the very power of your Spirit to have honest assessments of ourselves, to grasp the gravity of who Jesus is, and earnestly reflect the reality of his Lordship in every single aspect of our lives with conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years back, you might remember when it seemed Australia uh, seemed to be endlessly cycling through prime ministers. Do you remember that stage? And people would often glib, they'd joke, from one day to the next, it's Tuesday, well, who's in charge now? But in the ancient world, there was no mistaking who was in charge. And centurions, centurions helped ensure that there was no room for misunderstanding. They were almost universally despised by the Jews, and that's not surprising. Centurions were part of the Roman military machine. They were dotted throughout the empire, and each centurion commanded up to 100 soldiers. They were the local and ever-present reminder and force by which people experienced the ridicule, oppression, and power, the control of Rome. We can kind of think that centurions were just like British, uh, brutish thugs, and they're already always ready to pick a fight or something like that. But Polybius, a Greek historian, said of centurions that they were not so much venturesome or daredevils, but to be natural leaders of steady and sedate spirit that do not desire them so much to be men who will initiate attacks and open the battle, but men who uphold their ground when worsted and hard-pressed and be ready to die at their posts. They were hardened. They were strategic. They were chosen on the basis of merit. They were committed to keeping the empire in check. They served the emperor as their lord. Yet weirdly, like really surprisingly, time and time again throughout the New Testament, we read of centurions, so these ones who faithfully served the emperor, the lord of the Roman Empire, we we read of these centurions who who come to recognise and put their faith in an even greater lord. So you might recall the centurion at the cross recognised Jesus as the son of God. Cornelius, the centurion, the very first Gentile Christian convert in Acts. And here, in Matthew chapter 8, this centurion also comes to put their faith in the authority of Jesus. This centurion, who was chosen by Rome on the basis of merit, who helped keep the empire in check and serve the emperor as lord, 
not only comes to Jesus, but he comes confidently to him. No one would have expected that. And as we consider this encounter between the centurion and Jesus, we see that the reasons why this centurion can come confidently to Jesus are surprising. They're actually really countercultural for us. The centurion can come to Jesus with confidence, not because of his might, nor his intellect, his wealth, his status, or his strength, but because in the very face of Jesus, the centurion knows that he is desperate, undeserving, and powerless. It's in the recognition of his condition that he sees clearly who Jesus is and so responds. So first, the reason the centurion can come to Jesus confidently is because he is desperate. In fact, it's not just because he's desperate, but because he knows that he's desperate. Let's have a look. Verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Now, we don't know, of course, why or how the centurion's servant became paralysed, if it was from illness, accident or violent incident, but it's clear that it is a dire situation. The word that is translated as a servant here, it can be understood in a number of ways, but it likely carries the connotation here not only of a slave, but actually of a younger male. He is paralysed, he is suffering terribly. Initially, the centurion doesn't even make a direct request. He just states the facts. The implications of the predicament would have been well understood. The servant's prognosis and prospects would not have been good. There was no medical care or treatment that they could access, let alone afford. There was no social support that would have been available to them or their family if they had one. In fact, in a world that, that viewed slaves more as possessions rather than people, a, a paralyzed servant would have been typically written off as having no utility nor, nor worth, just a burden. It's a perilous situation in a world often bereft of compassionate care. But I want to really note that what is really remarkable is not only that the centurion seems to have compassion for the slave, which is actually surprising in this context, you know, why else would he bother going to Jesus for help? But he must have gone to Jesus because at some level he expected, he hoped that Jesus would have compassion too. We don't know how much the centurion knew about Jesus, but whatever he had heard, whatever he had witnessed, whatever he had seen, must have been enough for him to take his compassion-filled desperation and direct it, take it, to the one who he thought might respond with compassion to. Even if you didn't read to the end of the story, okay, if you just sort of heard the beginning part, you probably have a hunch about how the story is going to end, wouldn't you? So a man goes to Jesus about his servant who is paralysed. You think, aha, I can see where this is going. I know how this story ends. Well, you only know that because we've seen time and time again in the Gospels that in the sight of need, Jesus is filled with a gut-wrenching compassion over and over again and acts. 
for those who are sick, for those who are possessed, for those who are lost. Yet it's extraordinary that whatever evidence there was to give the centurion inkling of confidence in Jesus' compassion, we have so much more of the one who knows no limits to help us, not even laying down his life for us. That's what we know. We have all the confidence we need to reassure us that when we go to God, he will greet us with compassion. Yet sometimes, still strangely, something can stop us, can get in the way, can prevent us from going to God with our needs. Sometimes, of course, that's just because we we don't understand the gravity of our situation, of just how desperate we are. Occasionally in the, the low household in my house, when things go awry, they do occasionally go awry, Someone might ask something like, um, you know, I'll ask the kids something like, why didn't you come and get me when you couldn't turn off the water and it overflowed the basin and sort of threatened to flood the entire house? And I might get the response, I didn't think I needed any help. You know, sometimes we think we can do it alone. We think we've got things sorted. We're too proud to ask. That our situation isn't as bad as it seems. But that's not how Jesus sees things. In just a few verses' time, when Jesus remarks that this is greater faith than anything he's witnessed in God's people, he warns that there is a time of judgment coming, and that without him, we stand perilously alone. Uh, Other times in the low household when things go awry, I might ask the kids, why don't you come and get me? And they might respond, because I knew I did something wrong, and I didn't want to get in trouble. And I might say, well, you did do something wrong, but I'm still going to help. How much more we can be assured that when we take our need to God, especially our need for forgiveness, that he greets us with compassion. He even went to the cross for our wrongdoing. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that when we go to Jesus, he's going to give us everything we want or heal us from every ailment. Part of the point of Jesus' miracles is to point us to the ultimate work of healing for us on the cross and also to point us to the sort of future that he will bring to completion that he's paved the way for through his resurrection. But when we take our needs to him, he will greet us with compassion. When you take your needs to him, he will greet you with compassion. You know, as I think back on different moments in my life, it is easily when I am am most desperately and rightly hungering for God, they are the times that I most comprehensively cling to him. You might think, well, it's different for the centurion. The centurion had nothing to lose. But in a culture that was built on shame and honour, asking for help from Jesus meant he had so much to lose. I can desperately long for all sorts of things, many things that I don't need, many things which are actually not good for me. And sometimes we can feel ready to almost do anything to get those things. But none of those things will satisfy. But when it comes to Jesus, being truly desperate 
means you not only recognize the need, but you recognize what you actually desperately need is God himself. In a culture that prides itself on independence, on self-sufficiency, we can look at that sort of desperation, and that's pathetic, that's, that's weak, but it is wonderful. For God is not only the one who we should be desperate for, he is the only one who we desperately need. And we see that when the centurion goes, when he goes to Jesus, Jesus doesn't ignore the need, minimise the pain, reflect the problem, reject the person. But he sees the need, he sees us in our desperation, and is willing and able to do something about it. The centurion's desperation confidently pushes him towards Jesus' compassion. Second, the centurion can come to Jesus confidently because he knows he's undeserving. Verse 7. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. When Jesus asked if he should come to the centurion's home, so under his roof, and, and heal the servant, the centurion would have known that this could have put Jesus into a really tricky situation. Uh, for a Jew to enter a Gentile's house would have meant that they became ceremonially unclean. It could have also exposed Jesus to all sorts of harsh criticism, especially from some of the religious leaders. But this isn't just concern from ceremonial uncleanliness or the potential for, for criticism. It seems that the centurion, a leader from the, the Roman military apparatus, does not think he is worthy to have Jesus as his guest. The word deserve that's used here is actually the very same word that John the Baptist used. So when John the Baptist recognised that Jesus was the long-awaited one and that he, John, was not worthy to baptise him, let alone untie his sandals. You know, there are two active forces at work when it comes to unworthiness. It's the interaction between how great we think the other person is and how lowly we think of ourselves. We can feel unworthy because we think someone is much greater than us, rightly or wrongly. We can feel unworthy because we think we are so much lesser than the other. Sometimes those two things come rushing together. But in our modern way of thinking, we can actually push back and go, hey, I'm not unworthy of anything. The very fact that I'm me makes me worthy of everyone else, even God. God kind of owes me. But that's not how the centurion sees his place when it comes to Jesus. We're actually told in Luke's account of this story that despite most centurions being despised by the Jews, this centurion was actually loved. He, he was loved because it seems that he loved the Jewish people and he even provided resources to build the synagogue. Many religious folk at the time thought they had racked up stacks of points with God and that God kind of owed them. But when the centurion goes to Jesus, he doesn't recall all his kindness credentials. He doesn't pull out all the receipts for the synagogue building fund because perhaps heart of hearts, maybe he knows that there's nothing he could do or is in his capacity to be that would put him in a position worthy, acceptable or owed to by Jesus. He has a right humility. Even though he reports to the Lord of the Roman Empire, the centurion seems to get 
by his action that Jesus is an even greater Lord. It's because the centurion recognises his complete unworthiness that there's nothing he can bring, nothing he can add, no bargaining chip on offer, no point of leverage when it comes to Jesus, that all he's got to rely on is Jesus' grace. Think about it. If he brings nothing to the table, all he's got to depend on is Jesus' generosity. Because the centurion was desperate, it caused him to rely on Jesus' compassion. Because the centurion knew he was undeserving, it caused him to rely on Jesus' grace. On Jesus' generosity, not what he owes us by merit. That's, that's precisely how we approach Jesus too. It's like the words of that old hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Now that doesn't mean that we don't have anything to offer in response to Jesus. We, we offer our whole lives to him. But we do so in response to his grace, not to earn his grace. It's, I think, so liberating. It shows us that if you want to come to Jesus, you don't need to put on a show, you don't need to puff yourself up, you don't need to make yourself look better, you don't need to mask your sin or cover your shortcomings to not look so bad, you don't need to wait until you've earned enough kudos and got enough credit. In our, in our household, uh, every week after my son Theo has chess club, I hear the report, the report of all the points that he managed to rack up during different games of chess. But how much points would you need with God? He's the Lord of all and he's full of grace. That's why we can confidently go to him. Finally, the centurion comes to Jesus confident because he knows he's powerless. So back to verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you under my roof, but to say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. That one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Centurions, of course, had their fair share of authority, but here he recognises two critical things. Not only that his authority is insufficient, it's powerless in this particular situation, but also that Jesus has a, a comprehensive authority that is superior to his own. So he not only recognises the limits of his power, but he recognises that there is one with greater power. When the centurion says that there is no need for Jesus to come to his house, he's not just saying that because he doesn't want to play host or get Jesus into trouble. He's not just thinking that Jesus can exercise some sort of magic from a distance or something like that. He seems to grasp just how extensive Jesus' authority is. The centurion had power from Rome. If he had told a soldier to go, he goes. Come here, he comes. Do this, he does it. That's amazing. I mean, I wish I kind of had that authority at home sometimes just with the kids, don't <laughs> But Jesus' authority... The centurion knows it's not just from a political realm backed by Caesar, but Jesus' authority, this power, is from God himself. 
Jesus doesn't just have power in the sphere of 100 men, but the sphere of Jesus' power is nothing less than the entire universe. Paul puts it like this in the letter to the Colossians, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The centurions seem to get a glimpse of that long before the letter of the Colossians was written, or even before the witnessing of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's so convicted by it that he puts his trust in Jesus. His recognition of powerlessness helped him to rely on Jesus' ultimate authority. It's no wonder that Jesus responds in verse 10, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The servant is not only healed at the moment, but Jesus tells the centurion that he's going to be part of the, the great messianic banquet. That's, that's an image of, of God's kingdom when it comes in full. Uh, a future that is, is not just for a select few, it's not just a private affair, a private dinner, but it's for all who trust in Jesus. You know, the message that's kind of on repeat in our age is basically you do you. You only need yourself. You deserve everything you want. You have the power within <laughs> But the gospel says, actually, Jesus is the Lord of all. Or as Abraham Kuyper puts it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human experience of which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. If that's true, then not only do we need him, but what else could we possibly need? What part of our lives could possibly be off limits to him? What part of our lives is he not trustworthy of? If he is the Lord of all, then that also means that he is the Lord of you and me. I wonder if you believe that. If you do, well, every day... We've got to begin to imagine over and over again what it looks like to live like that's true. Sometimes there's aspects of our lives that seem really slow to catch up to the reality that Jesus is Lord. We're to keep taking our lives to him over and over again. So whether you're a Christian or a not yet a Christian, uh, there can be so many things that prevent us going to God. But we can go to Jesus confidently. When we recognise that we're desperate, it'll really push us into his compassion. We'll take everything to him. When we recognise that we're unworthy, we'll be free to stop trying to prove our worth and just really delight in his grace. When we recognise that we're powerless, that we can't save ourselves, We'll not only rely on the one who has been given all authority, even authority over sin and death, but we'll get to work reflecting his lordship in every single domain of our lives.
Great faith is not trusting in ourselves. Great faith is trusting in the one who is Lord of all. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your extraordinary kindness to us. We, we thank you that you welcome us to come to you. Lord, we please pray, ask, and help us in the power of your spirit, Lord, that, that you would really enable us to have an accurate assessment of ourselves. Lord, how we thank you that when we recognise of just how desperate we are, that you really receive us with compassion. That when we recognise our unworthiness before you, you receive us with your grace. And when we recognise our powerlessness, that we can rely and trust in your authority. Lord, please help us to live each and every day reflecting that you are the Lord of all. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a podcast from St. Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.